0: All right, hey, this is day 37 of our Journey Through Scripture, and today we're going to be in Job 38 through chapter 40, verse 2, and then Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 20, uh, chapter 25, verse 13. Okay, Job 38. So this is kind of the moment we've all been waiting for. This is when the Lord uh, answers. So everybody has had their their say Uh, For many chapters, we've tried to track with what they are saying, and now God is going to chime in, and uh, it starts, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, so out of the whirlwind already is starting with God's inapproachability, his uh, command over all things, his command over nature, and that is very much the tenor of his response, so Uh, Verse 2 kind of sums it up. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Um, In other words, all these people have been speaking so many things with so much confidence, um, and yet none of you truly have knowledge as to my purposes and my ways in the world. Uh, This chapter uh, is definitely a... prime chapter that contributes to a a very helpful concept that I call uh, skeptical theism. This is a bit of a philosophy of religion term. Actually, I don't just call it that. Everybody kind of calls it that, who who works in that field. But it's essentially the idea that, uh, or I'd say it's an acknowledgement of the fact that when we're talking about God, we're talking about God. And we should be quite skeptical about our abilities to really know a ton about him that he doesn't that he doesn't actually reveal to us in other words through speculation through um rumination through through our our thinking and our conversations and everything do we really comprehend the one who is above all things, the one who has created the entire universe and upholds it with the word of his power, how reasonable is it that we could really understand the myriad of reasons that he has for doing anything that he does in this world? Um, And so the way that God does this is he basically challenges Job on uh, questions that have to do with God's sovereign rule over the created order so he begins in verse four where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth tell me if you have understanding and he goes on and on and on for 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 two chapters um uh, who is this where were you uh, where were you and just to pick a few when I when I laid laid the foundations of the earth when I shut in the sea have you ever commanded the morning? Uh, have you ever entered the recesses of the deep do you know the dwelling place of of light and darkness have you entered the snow storehouses and he and he and it, he he piles on question after question like two chapters of these questions where it seems like kind of like okay god we get the point we get the we get the point but that kind of is the point that there's so much that god could just go on and on about that he knows and that and that is under his hand that that he could just keep going the way that i kind of like to summarize what god is saying is when was the last time that you ordered an entire universe and once you have anything approximating that kind of knowledge then maybe we can have a conversation about this but there is no there is there is no us holding god to account that's a twisted way of thinking about the world. Uh, he doesn't answer to us. He doesn't owe us answers. Um, and even if you and I think that that can be taken as a very much like talk to the palm kind of answer. Um, but the 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 point of the matter, I think, is intensely helpful, even in the midst of uh, things like suffering and everything. Because what this means is that we cannot conclude from present circumstances, whether or not God is good or bad. What we know of him, we know because he's revealed it to us, not because I've looked at, how's my life going? Is it going well? Well, God must be good, and he must reward people, and I must be good. I must be on his side. And if it's going really lousy, well, God must not care about me, or I've um, clearly this is a referendum on my sin, right? All these things are not, not totally irrelevant theological questions, but questions that we should not assume that we just have the wisdom to be able to answer with the kind of certainty that uh, Job's friends have been seeking and that we often seek. And so then when we come to chapter 40, I think Job has um, really taken in God's Um, God's response, and he begins his um, in chapter 40, but right after God's final words in verses one and two of that chapter, and the Lord said to Job, shall a a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So, you know, what point is it in, in arguing with something, with God about something that you can't possibly understand? Uh, This is a call for trust, a call for trust in God's goodness, uh, a call to um, not be seeking out the cause, the divine cause for every little thing that happens, even a lot of the big things that happen. Some of those things are reasonably beyond our understanding, and it's unrealistic to think that we would just be able to intuit reasons for that. So that really has a lot to do with what uh, the skeptical theism perspective is, uh, which I think is very much implied in this passage, Um, and I just, uh, I like the name uh, of skeptical theism just because, just thinking about that, about why it's called that, really helps me to understand what it is and and to understand um, what I think is a much more constructive and helpful way to think about God uh, in a healthier way uh, than constantly thinking that we can guess why he's doing everything that he does. Okay, now on to Matthew 24. Uh, starting in verse 33. Well, let's uh, let's start from verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So uh, learn the lesson that you can see certain signs and realize that something else is around the corner. And so when he says, when you see all these things, know that he is near at the very gate. So... You see all the things that Jesus has talked about the the wars, the rumors of wars, um, the abomination of desolation, which will be the eventual destruction of the Jerusalem temple, um, and uh, and and in and and then the coming of the Son of Man, which I've noted probably denotes Jesus' receiving dominion after his resurrection and his ascension to the Father as opposed to his second coming. And he says, when you see all these things, know what? That he is near at the very gates. Notice he's not through the gates yet. He's near. Um, All that is left is for him to step through the gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not uh, pass away until all these things take place. And I mentioned that yesterday when we talked about this. That again, that's confirmation that he's talking about stuff that will happen in the lifetime of the disciples, and really, as far as I have seen, any attempt to retinker this verse to get it to say something else that, uh, you know, it's the generation that sees uh, something yet to happen in the future, uh, just seems very strained. This generation, he's talk, just like he's talked about this generation seeks for a sign and all this stuff, right, this evil and adulterous generation, this generation is the generation that Jesus is talking to, and that's when he says these things will take place. Uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, the one challenge to the interpretation I'm giving here uh, would be the um, that in uh, verse 27... He recall, he talks about his parousia, and he says, uh, as the lightning comes from the east to the west, uh, so far will, uh, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And that, I noted, was his parousia, his full presence, as opposed to his coming on the clouds, two, the two things that I think have to be held distinct from one another, if you're going to read this chapter correctly. But I would note that um, I don't think that that's part of the all these things that will take place within that generation, uh, because what he's doing there is is that statement is kind of embedded in this warning against false Christs and people who would tell you Christ is here, Christ is there during this age of tribulation. So he's saying, you know, by the way, don't listen to these people who are trying to mislead you, because when I come it will be like the lightning flashing in the sky. Um, so... In other words, so so that's not really part of the sequence of the events that Jesus is talking about here, if we can conceive of it as a sequence, or I should say the general characteristics of this age. Okay, uh, then Jesus may, goes on and makes a very uh, interesting statement that concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And this, of course, is a challenging verse. Uh, for those of us who who rightly and biblically believe in the in the full deity of Christ, the equality of Jesus with the Father, which, as we will see, is amply taught in the New Testament. Um, but here you seem to have a limit on Jesus' knowledge, right? And you say, well, in what sense is he God if he's given up that attribute? And uh, typically th- this is a bit of a head-scratcher, and it would take a while to unpack it, but I think typically the way that uh, the Orthodox— little O Orthodox, uh, theologians have answered this passage in light of the otherwise very clear teaching on the full divinity of Jesus, is that um, there? Jesus does possess two natures, right? He possesses a full divine nature and a full human nature, and it is with respect to his human nature that he lacks the knowledge of his return. And so uh, it's, it's a matter of... Uh, it's a matter of not so much emptying himself of 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 divine quality of divine qualities but taking on something uh that implies fleshly limitations just like Jesus could not be everywhere in, in in the world right he couldn't be omnipresent like like god typically is everywhere because he possesses a body uh with respect to his human nature he does not have that attribute um so Um, or I could maybe say does not exercise that attribute, but that's typically the way that's understood. Uh, But it does show Jesus's submission to the Father, that he is taking cues from the Father's will. That's not to say that his will is different, and that his will, Jesus wants to do one thing, but the Father wants him to do another, but he is totally subordinate, the, 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 the the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, have very distinct roles in the redemption of humanity. The Father sends, the Son comes, dies, and is raised, and then the Holy Spirit applies that message of salvation to our hearts and makes it effective in our lives. Um, the, something like that, right? That there's this economic working between like, what they're doing. And here, the Father is kind of calling the redemptive historical shots uh, with the Son— submitted to him. Um, And then he goes on and and tells uh, several different parables having to do with being ready. Um, So he talks about the days of Noah and how that's going to be um, the same thing that we will see with the coming of the Son of Man, Um, that in those days they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then they were taken unaware right? Because they weren't ready. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, interestingly, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That is not, again, that is not in Greek coming. That is the parousia of the Son of Man. So now he's talking about being ready for his second coming. Now he's on to that topic, okay? Okay. And the same goes for earlier on in verse 37. Both of these are the parousia of the Son of Man, not the quote-unquote coming of the Son of Man. Again, it's unfortunate that our Bible translations, a lot of them don't distinguish between these two because I think it would clear up a lot of confusion. But at any rate, uh, it talks about the, this illustration of men working in a field, women grinding at a mill. Uh, and the idea is stay awake, and then you have this uh, this comparison to the coming of the Son of Man as being like a thief in the night, right? And if you knew that it was coming, you would have prepared yourself for this. Um, so, so therefore, you must also be ready for you, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, and then he talks about what the faithful and wise servant does uh, while while he's waiting his master he he does not um, he does not do things like the uh, saying my master is delayed uh, beating his fellow servants eating and drinking with drunkards no there's there's a sense in which we who await Jesus need to be mindful of well there's a very good sense of it right we need to be mindful of how we spend our time what we are doing because of the imminent return of Jesus that it can come um, at any time. Um, then at the beginning of chapter five, we have a parable of the ten virgins, uh, which are um, uh, two part of a wedding party and their their job is to meet the bridegroom who is coming. and five turn out to be foolish, five turn out to be wise and uh, the the foolish ones, uh, they all have lamps, right, and they're supposed to meet him with their lamps burning. That's part of this uh apparently part of this ceremony that's being described, much more elaborate kind of several day wedding sort of thing. and uh the bridegroom is delayed, and they all become drowsy and fall asleep but the and and when he comes, he comes, he surprises all of them, and those who were prepared and had oil um are able to go out and meet him and to fulfill their their role, but those who did not now are kind of panicking because he's here on the last minute. and so um, and and while they're trying to get their stuff in order, the bridegroom comes. those who are ready went with him to the marriage feast and then the door is shut and uh, and and they and and they they cannot come into the wedding feast. And that, of course, is, again, another one of these these parables about urgency and not falling asleep and wakefulness that we can find a lot of interest maybe in these kind of end times ideas. What's it going to be like when Jesus comes back? Or what's it going to be like? Uh, what's he talking about here? What's he talking about here? Is this come some kind of future event? But at the end of the day, wherever we land, um, even if we're disagreeing on things— as Christians, the 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 correct response to the fact that Jesus is indeed coming back, even if we ha- don't have it all figured out, is be ready. Don't be like the one who took his time and said, "My master's delayed. Let me go and you know fight with my other servants, fight with other Christians, other people in the body of Christ, uh, get drunk, spend my time wasting it." No, um, it is it is the the ready. Um, servant who is welcomed. The ready virgin is welcomed. Um, And then tomorrow we're going to look at the parable of the talents, which I think kind of starts to illustrate a little bit more of what does it mean to be ready. And then, of course, we will see something similar to that in the sheep and the goats. But that is getting ahead of ourselves for now. uh, We are done for today. So until tomorrow when we do discuss the parable of the talents... As always, take care and uh, keep reading. Keep reading your Bibles. Uh, Life is found in here. So until we talk again, have a great day. Bye bye.